Hello, everyone, and welcome to another issue of uh, episode of Free Lunch. Uh, today we have today we have Carlos, uh, me, I'm Steve, and Greg, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened since the last episode of Free Lunch. We're going to talk some about uh, the Canadian protests and trusts, some then about uncertainty in policymaking, and finally we'll make predictions on the record that will likely be wrong for you know what will happen in the midterms. So, uh, but first. Uh, let's turn it over to Carlos. Yeah, we figured I would start by doing a little a little recap on 2021, and we we you know we had a, a series of discussions before the election in 2020, thinking about what why we're voting one particular way, and I think I was the only vote on a particular direction uh, that during the round with some students that were participating in those discussions as well, and we spent time talking amongst ourselves why it was that we're they were doing it. So we thought about revisiting that after uh, a year. Of, of the Biden administration would be a good, a good way to start. And let me just start on the record saying that I don't regret at all my vote in 2020, my vote for, for, for Trump and the Republicans in generally. And the concerns that I have, I think, were, were very much solidified in the past year in terms of what the Biden administration brought to the table. So I'm going to focus on two things generally, two general categories. One was a, 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 a the, 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 was so. Uh, competence versus ideas. Okay, so maybe one might say that as a Republican, I, might, I have some ideas that are different from 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 uh, Democrats in terms of my preference for things that are more quote libertarian in general, right? But also one might say that well, even given those preferences, I might have chosen to vote for Biden, for example, because the competency aspect aspect of the Trump administration were were too negative. There were a lot of like questions about the sort of ability of that administration to get anything you know, done and organized and, and so on. And again, the COVID pandemic was a great sort of example of, see, they're completely incompetent. They cannot manage this and, and so on, right? So in, I think in, in both directions, I don't see any improvement. Well, I knew there'll be no improvement in terms of ideas. I knew that the ideas of the left are ideas that I reject, that I think are terrible, ideas that are not compatible with uh, a, a better country ahead of us. However, I did expect to some degree an improvement in technocratic competence, just by, again, a lot of our institutions, a lot of our elites are governed by, by people of the left. And, you know, maybe there'll be some sort of like adjustment. Maybe the CDC will be working a little better. Maybe the FDA will be working a little better. And it turns out that, no, we didn't get any real improvement in any kind of competence uh, uh, aspect of this. So just to name a couple of things that are not necessarily related to bills that got passed or big ideas in terms of changing the country, just the, really the running of it, right? The running of the agencies in the administrative state. Um, COVID, the management of COVID under Biden was no better. We have had a completely, you know, deer in headlights of, of how to manage things, how to do testing, how to do quarantine, what are the rules they should be proposing, what the CDC proposes. And, and there's a complete, there's no plan. I just today received after... Two months of the Omicron wave started. I received two tests on the mail by the Biden administration. Thank you, President. That was really helpful for my two kids, me and my wife here after you know this long time. This long time. He we have had a lot of time for for improving testing, and we did it. And lots and lots of things that were criticized were that the Trump administration was criticized for not accomplishing in 2020. The Biden administration did not accomplish in 2021 either. So just to tongue in cheek, more people die under Biden than under Trump. Now, I will not blame, I will not assign blame to Trump for the deaths in 2020, nor I will to Biden in 2021, but we were promised that, you know, there was a big portion of their campaign that, no, 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 we can do this. We will do, take better care 
of the country in this pandemic. And the fact is that it did not happen. The other example I would use is foreign policy, which again, doesn't rely on any bill passed by Congress. This administration comes in and has no plan, has absolutely no plan. It has no ability to implement a plan in a, in a way that was, that was uh, uh, meaningful. I think Afghanistan is like, we can spend a whole hour talking about that debacle, whether you agree or not agree with the decision of, of, of removing the troops from Afghanistan, the implementation of it was just incredibly incompetent. Just uh, the, the, and 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 finally, currently, the the current crisis that we're living through in in, in foreign policy is something that I don't think there is any stated plan. There's no strategy. It's just we're just going by the day here, hoping to that Putin does not roll the tanks onto Ukraine. Um, so that to me shows that on the competence side, there's there's no improvement whatsoever in the past year. And then as we expected uh, uh, um, in our discussion in 2020, not much got done in terms of legislation. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that because a $1.9 trillion, I think, bill was passed with infrastructure plus COVID relief thing, which again is a, is a boondoggle of pork, right? So there's not, you know, you're gonna, there'll be years and years and years before any of these infrastructure projects actually take place. There'll be years and years and years before the money that was allocated to help people right now actually get to people. So. It's once again a big gesture, a huge expansion of the federal government in 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 expansion in expenditures without actual you know direct uh, outcomes. But that was bipartisan in, to some degree, which which is terrible. Um, but then nothing else really after that. Build back better and uh, the the voting rights things and all the other more uh, left leaning type of uh, ideas and bills that that <clears throat> Biden would like to pass. In a divided Congress, in a 50-50 Senate, they 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 have not been able been able to do. Again, that was expected. And finally, the one thing that worries me a lot is in the same level of the competence discussion is the fact that the nominees that we're getting for important agencies in this administration are radicals, are people chosen on the basis of very strong ideological bent. That I have a huge concern of what kind of long-term consequence of this is. Uh, we're going to have an episode coming up talking about um, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, with a 30-some-year-old new person that is the head of that now that has very strong and radical ideas of how uh, 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 antitrust should be, should be put forward. That was something, a big, big long-term consequence uh, based on this particular change in that agency. We see the Federal Reserve nominations currently being chosen on not expertise, but chosen on other types of things. There's a, a person being nominated right now whose big sort of uh, claim to fame is to say that we should debank a lot of uh, oil and gas and make sure that you know they don't have access to banking and so on. And it's going to be the top regulator for the Fed. That's not the job of the Fed is to talk about credit allocation in our economy. Um, and on top of it, another governor um, nominee that you know has never write, wrote a paper or anything. Any there's no expertise whatsoever in monetary policy or macroeconomics for for, for that matter. And rather, you know, works on issues of systemic racism and, and so on. So again, ideologues, radicals coming in into very important agencies that should be technocratic, that should be really, really competence uh, based. So I'm not surprised by any of this. I, 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 you know, that's been the band of the Democratic Party for a while now. And I guess the only thing that gives me hope is that we're looking forward here to there's a lot of loss of credibility in that administration already after one year. So Hopefully, this is a short-term uh, problem that we live through. So I guess I was the other one who was a player in those election podcasts, and I voted the other way. I voted for Biden also, knowing he'd be a disaster. 
And uh, he's been about the kind of disaster I'd expected. I still think the country is immeasurably better off uh, him having won than Trump having won. But everything Carlos says is true. There's been very little change in um, in uh, in actual day to day policy with respect to competence of handling things. So uh, COVID was a disaster before. It continues to be a disaster. That is, our response to it continues to be a disaster. It would have been a disaster anyway, but you could imagine competent government handling of it, and this was nothing like it. Um, there were a few things early on that Biden did that were a little bit improvements. Um, uh, he uh, helped get home testing more available earlier by changing something in the regulatory framework, and that was good, but then there are no home tests. So, we, you know, the, the few things he moved the ball on a little bit, he dropped the ball on really quickly. Um, foreign policy, I mean, Afghanistan was a disaster. The kind of general time frame to lock us into withdrawal, Trump started, and it would have been a disaster under him, but maybe he'd have executed better. It would have been hard to execute it worse. So uh, one way or the other, this was just... Uh, um, a nightmare and an embarrassment. The main fault, I think, for this lies with Bush and Obama in setting up how this war was to begin with and not not getting it into better terms, but none of these presidents is innocent of it. Um, the worst thing uh, with Biden, I, so I think, yeah, in terms of what got passed, um, it's hard to call the stimulus, not the stimulus, sorry, the infrastructure bill little, but it's little in comparison to what people were talking about. And that we were going to have a bill of about that size on that kind of thing was baked in whoever won. Indeed, we might have got worse with the Republican and the Democrats. The Democrats will always spend more if the Republican wants them to. And uh, sometimes in this mixed, more mixed case, we get a little more stasis. Um, the worst thing, I think, with the Biden administration by far is appointments to regulatory commissions. And Khan, uh, in particular, is someone I'd had my eye on as a real villain way prior to her being chosen by this from when she was at Yale Law School writing these papers, uh, wanting to revive and, and strengthen the worst of antitrust. And we're, we're gonna have a session on her and her, um, what she's doing uh, uh, there later. And there are others. So these are the kind of worst features of it. I think of these as um, corrosive, bad, normal. Whereas I think of what um, the main problem with the Trump administration is I think a much faster eroding and attack on uh, the norms of constitutional government and practices. Um, I think to me, the main divide within American politics now is not between the right and the left, but between pragmatic technocratic institutionalists on the one hand, whom I don't think are any good, but they're better than the alternative, which is kind of burn it all down um, types who don't have a positive vision to offer for an alternative, but want to dismantle in one way or another um, what's existing out of grievance. And I think of um, too much of the right now as having quickly moved in that direction. I think Trump's the symbol of that. Not everyone he appointed was like that. A lot of the appointees were actually very good, but I think he himself is like that. And what he's mobilized in the Republican Party is like that. Um, I think that's much more dangerous than the presence of that in the current administration, which is nevertheless very corrosive and has to be fought. Um, we'll talk about what we're hoping for in the next elections later, but I'm certainly not hoping for, you know, continued democratic hegemony. So in, in response to the regulatory agencies, I note that, you know, the vast majority of the work in these agencies is done by career staff. And there's not a whole lot of turnover. There, there's turnover at the very, very top level in between administrations, but there's a lot of 
continuity. So I, I'm not I'm not sure that it, it, we can really evaluate you know the uh, the performance of uh, regulatory agencies with like how much change there would be from you know the, the end of the Trump administration to the beginning of the, of the Biden administration simply because it, it takes a long time to you know to boot up you know the the rule the rulemaking processes. And then, you know, separate from that, given that, you know, the career staff doesn't change that much, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't expecting that much, uh, that, much that, that much change. I mean, in sort of, you know, not, you know, sort of non-EPA uh, agencies, like the Securities and Exchange Commission, I think is, is going to be, you know, fairly, fairly similar. Um, but because the, the EPA, the, the EPA is just a, the, the Democrats and Republicans have very different regulatory ideas that certainly get expressed in, you know, how the EPA regulates, which is less prevalent in, in other agencies. So I, I, one, I, I get, I get, I, sorry. One other place where you might see it though. So there's the, the, how do the agencies, uh, the main thrust of the agency is these lifer staff there, right? Um, the, um, who's the guy in Yes Minister? Uh, if you guys have seen that show, um, Sir something or other. Anyway, the lifer staff, they're the civil servants. They don't change when the political appointees at top change. Um, and I think, you know, that's right, that whatever kind of change the politicians can do there is more glacial. But there's also the change to how the, what the interface is from the um, alleged technocrat subject matter experts and the politics. And one thing that um, Trump was, I think rightly seriously criticized for that you might have hoped for something better from Biden and you didn't get it was the politicization of of um, of the CDC. So there was uh, I think cases where it seemed like he was leaning on them to either not say things or say things different ways because of um, a political headway or, or or sidelining them. You might have thought, well, Biden he'll put things you know back the way they should be or something how they are in in, in previous pandemics um, or previous health emergencies where kind of, it felt apolitical, whether or not it was, and the CDC was sort of more the source of the message. But um, there were cases where you got the same kind of thing, um, particularly regarding recommendations for schools, bowing to pressure from teachers unions and things like this, where it seems like, yeah, this isn't medicine, it's being filtered through the political interests of the candidate and who his uh, pressure groups are on it. So there's, there's how that scientific um, advice giving expert apparatus is deployed when it's deployed and when it's not, that is in the hands, uh, you might think of the politicians and you might hope for one party to do better than the other. But again, we're seeing, I think, different flavors of politicizing it. I, I just want to push back on Steve's point also. On one, in, so I agree with you on the EPA. There's a lot of uh, regulatory framework that takes a while for things to go through. Judges getting, you know, administrative judges getting placed and the people like their thing can sue. And so there's the system is robust to abrupt changes. S same for the SEC. I don't like this type of like green disclosure BS that's taking place now on ESG crap, whatever. Um, which by the way, I'm plugging in. There's a talk coming up this Friday here at McCombs by somebody from Chicago just showing how essentially how, how, how silly this whole ESG investing is. Uh, but point being is that I can see that even though the message at the top has that, 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 that the, the flavor, you know, the rulemaking and the process is slow and is not as glacial as, 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 but 
Similar for the Fed, the regulatory side of the Fed, I, I give you that. But for monetary policy, that's not fast. That's not glacial. That is fast. Having a person in a room who might decide that we should not raise or lower interest rates because black unemployment is different than white unemployment, it's pre really problematic. And that's the type of person that Biden is nominating for that position. And that's, and again, it's one vote out of nine or whatever, but still it, it's a kind of discussion. It's a person that also attacked economists for having, basically saying that we should have limits on free speech in academia. She's on record saying that, trying to get rid of the, the editor of the Journal of Political Economy when it came out last two years ago, talking about, well, we should be a little careful with this, this fund the police movement. Um, so, you know, I think that kind of person has a lot of power and can change, change things fast. The other one that I'm concerned, in, and, and that's uh, uh, Greg pointed out as in Khan, she decides who to bring suit against or not. It's a prosecutor job, essentially, and that has a huge impact right now. Now, to the she needs the, the prosecutors underneath her to work, right? And it turns out that a bunch of them quit recently because the, the career the career is there like, wait a second, this is like a, it would, you know, we're changing the system too fast, right? So there's a, there's a big exodus there, which can be good or bad, right? <laughs> in the sense that I don't know how it's going to be repopulated. So those two in particular uh, are the two agencies that I have a lot of concern with given the, the, the sort of ability they have to change things pretty fast. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right in, in, in pointing out that, that there are that not all of the government is sort of glacially slow. There are, you know, the Federal Reserve can make decisions that impact markets you know, immediately. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that, I, 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 I was inartful when I said, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, no, all, it's, okay. it, it's all it's all slow. It's a very good point. Uh, so do we want to talk, uh, move on to the talking about the, the trucking uh, protests and the lack of trust in uh, the, the policymaking class class? Yeah, um, I mean, we can we can spend again another hour talking about the just the truck, the truck, uh, the freedom trucker. I don't even know. Is that a name, official name for the Canadian truck protest? Um, I've heard Freedom Convoy, but I don't know if that's an official freedom name. Freedom Convoy, yeah, yeah, the Freedom Convoy. Uh, but so my take on it, 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 uh, it, it is not separable from what Greg mentioned in terms of the sort of politicization of scientific, of the scientific advice and the expert class. We've lived through two years now where things got politicized very quickly. We just had an episode of, not an episode, we had an interview with Matt Ridley talking about his new book on, on the origin of COVID-19. And that's one example of that politicization, right? Early 2020, if you were to dare to say, listen, I don't know what this thing, maybe, maybe this is a lab leak. Maybe this came from a lab in China. It's sort of coincidental that this virus comes out in a town where 200 feet away, there's this like premier lab on coronavirus research in China. You're deemed, you know, a racist, or whatever, right? Somebody that should be removed from polite company by suggesting that. Well, it turns out that the evidence now sort of weighs heavily in that, in that being the, 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 the dominant hypothesis versus the zoonotic jump, which is like anim, you know, the virus jumping from animals to people. So that's one example. There's lots of examples in the past two years that, uh, advice and, and the way and the way the policies and draconian policies a lot of times were put in place, policies that would remove a lot of people's abilities to make choices by themselves were done in ways that were not just, quote, following the science, but rather in a very uh, politicized way. So the erosion of trust in institutions and expert classes is something that's been going on for a while. I think the polarization of, you know, in, in, the, in the political space as well, but this was not good for that, right? The last two years were particularly bad for that. And I think the structure represent a lot of that, right? After a while, like, oh, well, you know, take the vaccine and that's gonna get us out of the pandemic. 
you have a mandate in Canada and it turns out it doesn't matter. You know, Omicron gets you anyway. And, and you know, you're going to get a better outcome. That's a personal a benefit now, no longer a, a positive externality, right? Something that will help your community. So, and the inability for governments to, to like adapt and, you know, err on the side of freedom in the past two years, I think leads to this. So they err on the side of know-it-all, trying to be very interventionist at a time where they don't have the, the, the actual certainty to do so. They don't have the actual information to be able to be very effective. So I think that people get that at some point. And I think we're seeing a very strong reaction to it in this movement in Canada, and which by the way, now lots of people around the world are very supportive of it. Similar type of things are happening uh, in other places. The fall, the fall of the science rallying cry, I, I find really interesting in that it, it, it is now it just means, you know, something to the effect of like, well, we should follow, you know, COVID mandates and, it, it's not sort of a general, it, it, it's portrayed as this general, like, yes, science tells us X, therefore we must follow it. But that, you know, the, the CDC, for instance, also recommends against eating, you know, raw cookie dough and, you know, medium rare hamburgers. And yet in that, in, in, in that case, you know. Or I think no. they recommend very strongly against smoking. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, right. And we are on the side of freedom there. So in, in that case, like, it, well, you know, not entirely. I mean, smoking's banned in lots of places. You can't have a restaurant sorry, where you're allowed to smoke it. But I mean, that's not freedom. Freedom is you decide whether your restaurant allows smoking or not. And I decide about mine. So it's just we haven't gone all the way to all no freedom way. yet. Right, right. Just, we haven't banned it completely. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, your point of following the science being this, this bad, you know, again, science cannot weigh trade-offs. Right. Science is a process that collects facts, that collects you know, uncertainty descriptions of things, representations. Again, another plug for an event we had just two days ago about a philosopher of science coming in talking exactly about that, how models in particular being used for policy where they're not, they're just not uh, really good vehicles for policy. And, 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 you know, that was not necessarily ever debated, never presented in a way that was honest. I think the lack of honesty in the scientific class in particular in portraying the knowledge and, and, and the sort of like consequences of their recommendations um, I think, you know, creates more and more distrust out there in folks that, you know, might not be as sophisticated in reading the evidence and so on, right? Like, I don't want to be elitist in saying this, but just like, I can see that lots and lots of people in the world look at us right now and be like, guys, I know what you're talking about. It's not an issue of elitism. It's, a, um, it's an issue of division of labor, right? Nobody can be an expert on everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you're a statistician, so you're an expert on the stats of things, but you're not an expert on the data collection that ha had to do with the stats in every field. And then with all the other causal factors that might not be considered. So you could say, like, at a stats level, is this model good, but not at every. And likewise, for every other expert in every area of someplace, there's no universal expert. And so... Um, there's no, like, one voice that science speaks with. What there is is, is a kind of division of labor we need to figure out how to know who to listen to in each case. And most decisions require the synthesis of information from many different uh, specialties and um, value premises. And so all of that has to happen. And there's a, a question as to how good is our culture at that? So the trade-offs is about different values that might be guiding it, but also like even to know what'll happen, like will unemployment go up or down if this happens? You need like a, a number of different 
factual specialties involved, um, so at least for some things that we can ask about. Like, um, so, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of, when, when we're thinking about, do we trust the science or do we trust the experts or do we trust, part of what we're thinking is to what extent do we trust that our community has good norms to surface the right relevant information, to have the relevant arguments come to the force, that you're hearing the right sets of opinion, that the right debates are happening in the right places so that truth will surface from all the different specialties and specialized work that it has to happen. And I think, yeah, um, no society's ever done that perfectly. Many, perhaps most have done it worse than ours does. But um, there's a lot of reasons to be concerned that we're not doing it nearly as well as we need to. And then there's the question of what do we do about that? And, and as far as you don't trust the mainstream institutions in general or on a given issue, then what do you do? Because uh, I think people tend to too quickly think they know what the right answer is if you conclude that the mainstream is doesn't know what it's talking about. And I think usually the right answer is if the mainstream doesn't know what it's talking about, we're in pretty bad shape because it's hard for anyone else to figure it out either. Um, you could figure it out on some issues, but not on all usually, because again, division of labor, we don't, no one could work everything out. And I, I think that the, 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 the less straw on that is that I think we lived through we, the tail end of a sort of unusual time where we had one institution in our society that could be trusted for, from many angles. So, so, you know, there was some, media was always some sort of bias and there were like a little bit more right-leaning, left-leaning, but not to the extent that we have now. So now the purveyors of information became, you know, they're, they're in extremes, right? Even though there's a lot of sources you can get online and people can, you know, go listen to Rogan, go listen to this, whatever. But the main sources are very much politicized. And that, I think, just makes the whole problem even, even worse, right? We just don't, uh, people just quickly, would you say, people quickly make a decision on what is right or wrong in their own minds based on their tribe and uh, whatever channel they happen to, to, to listen to. And, and that's it. There's no update for that. They're more factionalized anyway. I don't know that they were any more objective in the 50s or the 40s or the 60s. I suspect not, actually. But what? But there was a lot more consensus around that what you got from Cronkite was the truth. And what you got from these sources, were if it, if, if it were wrong, everybody was buying into what was wrong, except for on whatever topics it was, except for very minor, very marginalized people. Whereas now it's much more, um, there's access to more information. So it's easier to spot biases, problems that um, the mainstream has, uh, or the mainstream, since there's more than one mainstream. Um, and, uh, but that leads to people tribalizing, polarizing, polarizing where there aren't, I don't think really ideological differences, but a lot of mistrust and hatred of the other and cultural differences. And um, yeah, so now you, you know, you get this much more factionalization and lack of trust. And that goes to the truckers kind of case, I think, again. So what the truckers thing, I mean, I earlier talked about what I think the real division in the country isn't um, a right-left division, but the important division, I think, in the country isn't a right-left division, but a division between two groups, neither of which I think that well of, which is the kind of um, technocratic establishment pragmatist types. And the people who resent that, want down with that, but don't know what they want to put in its place. And I think you get examples of each of that on, you know, various, some of them, the Bernie bros or whatever, are, um, are more that on the left, uh, whereas Hillary is more the technocrat on the left. And then on the right, um, Mitch McConnell is more the kind of technocrat pragmatist and, and Trump is more the um, replace it with something kind of thing. And 
um, the, we've had a lot of discontent with this technocratic um, managerial, allegedly elite bureaucrats um, uh, for decades now. It's been kind of boiling over and intensifying. There's been diminishing trust in this group, in part, I think, because there's so much more access to information and people can see through certain things, uh, in part because there have been conspicuous failures in America. The intelligence failure before 9-11 is an obvious one, but lots of others. Nobody saw 2008 coming, and uh, that gives you a lot less uh, confidence in the government's ability to plan and protect and, and in the banks and so forth. And we've seen breaking out around the world these kinds of um, to hell with the elites, to hell with the people who are supposed to know kind of movements, which have a point because they do know a lot less than they're, they're purported to, but then that don't really have an alternative. And I think the Yellow Vest movement in France, if people remember those protests from a few years back, uh, was an example of this. And the truckers one seems to be uh, something like this also, but um, connected well, I, I... more to the COVID restrictions and I the agree, COVID restrictions. Yeah. So I agree with you, but I, I, both the yellow vest and the truckers have a very specific demand. They're not demanding replace the system, burn it down. Oh, we want to have a libertarian nirvana here. Uh, they're saying don't force me to take a vaccine, which is a very justifiable position from, 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 so, you know, Hey, you elites who failed me for two years enough. Don't we're gonna we're gonna like you know make that's it. So they're asking for one little one thing, and the and the yellow vests were maybe there's a representation of a larger thing there. But they were asking for one thing it was a gasoline uh, tax increase that made their lives harder, right? The lives of the right. working class particularly harder in France during that time. So yeah. um, I mean, yes, I think that there is a vertent there, uh, and 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 that's like the opportunity right now in the sort of like you and I are more in the libertarian movement, and we believe that fewer rules are generally better. We want people to be able to make more decisions by themselves. Uh, there's an opportunity now of trying to canvas this type of sentiment out there to pass reforms that would be, you know, reforms more in the direction of, of liberty. How to do so is difficult because I don't see any, any le leadership, any political leadership that's being able to harness that energy that I think might be out there. Instead, what you get is exactly what you're saying. The people there are saying to hell with it all. Uh, the sort of so populist, the populist, which is not a great, which is not a great alternative either, right? So, so that's the question about each of these, and like both started with a concrete thing they were objecting to, right? And then the question is, what is this movement? Is it just about we don't want a vaccine mandate? Is it just about we don't want this gasoline tax, or is it about something else? What is the movement about? And whenever these mass protest movements, these kind of take to the streets type movements, come about, which are very diffuse in their organization it's a little hard to figure out what's driving them. And I've not looked sort of super deep into the trucker thing, but you know, if I read five things by people supporting the truckers or truckers, they don't all say the same thing. They all don't like the mandates, but what do they want instead? And how do they think it should work? Do they think there should be no mandates? To the, it's, um, it's not clear to me what they stand for yet, except that they're frustrated and pissed off. Right. And there's a lot to be frustrated and pissed off about, but um that's Just a recommendation. Start. You mentioned something to read. Uh, I think it was in Barry's, Barry Weiss's Substack. There was an entry uh, of somebody that interviewed maybe 10 different people in the protest. Again, it's an anecdote, right? 10 people is not a representation, but, but at least you know, a qualitative representation of, of uh, what's going on there. And it was kind of cool because the, the people are very different kinds of people. They had very different concerns. It was, it's not, you know, speaking to your point, it's not from that report, at least, which is a very thoughtful essay. It didn't. It doesn't seem this one thing only, right? And for sure, Barry Weiss is really doing a service to journalism. I think with the kinds of he's getting out a lot of good stuff that wouldn't otherwise 
Well, I should say just also with respect to the verses, as a, a matter of general principle, uh, I think um, public out in the street protests are wrong, taking up streets, blocking right of way, um, uh, pe making people have to go out of business because they can't ship what they want to ship, not striking and not trucking, but you know, like blocking their doors. I think pickets in general are immoral and should be illegal. Um, pickets that, you know, that block people from going in. I think a lot of what all of these protest movements from the um, uh, anti, uh, from across the political spectrum, um, including the BLM movements. A lot of these actions I think are wrong or almost always wrong. There's a very high bar as to what you have to be against and what you have to be for to justify this action. But whether this is the right action or not in a given case is a separate question from whether the cause they're fighting is right. And- um, so let, me ask you, let me ask you some on that. Like how about Tiananmen Square? Tiananmen Square, I think, was justified, but that's because it was a dictatorship. So the better the bar, so the bar. Man, and I think, and I, so I think the the things that make it unambiguously right is you have a dictatorship and no political recourse within the system, so you couldn't vote out Mao. You can vote out Trudeau. Now it could be that the thing is so bad and so acute that it's um, it's an exception to that, but. The civil rights marches in 60. Yeah, so I think particularly because voting was an issue in the civil rights marches. Okay. Um, particularly because there was an effective inability of blacks to vote in the South. I, I think that's what made, and even there, I'm not sure that everything that they did in them was appropriate. But that's what I think makes the case there. The In this case, the, the taking the vaccine mandates, uh, in my view, are, they shouldn't be mandated but it's small potatoes compared to the rights violations that were part of the COVID response. If there had been this kind of response over the lockdowns to begin with, I would have been a lot more sympathetic. That was an unprecedented kind of assault on, uh, on liberty. This kind of, we're gonna shut down whole countries for months at a time and we're gonna have curfews and all kinds of things. There's not really good science supporting it. We don't know what the hell we're doing. We're, we're God knows what havoc we're wreaking to the economy and to people's lives. Um, there have been all kinds of vaccine mandates for different vaccines that the evidence is uh, worse on that they're useful for you than this vaccine. I don't think we should have any of those, but this is, I think, you know, a drop in the bucket uh, of, of um, an inappropriate government action compared to what was a major aggressive expansion of rights violating power early in the pandemic. And um, I think what we're seeing is people just fed up. We, we were okay with it when we thought it would go away in two months. Or two but, weeks, right? We thought it was yeah. two weeks, but two years later, people were like, you know, now enough, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh. And it, so it's interesting that this, like, a, maybe to circle this topic out, um, you have all these blue states now dropping mass mandates. And it's not like, you know, Omicron's still around. There's a lot of the infection levels are high, and the CDC is not saying anything about that. The CDC actually is against it. Uh, and, and they're doing because, it, you know, it's polling really bad right now. <laughs> People are done. People are just really fed up with it. And, you know, at the end of the day, right, the, 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 the political system actually respond to voters. And, and that's an example of that, which is, which is good. So this gets into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is you know, uncertainty in policymaking. Uh, and especially, you know, now we, we have, I mean, granted, there, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to where COVID will go. You know, Omicron sort of, at, at least from you know my perspective, came out of out of nowhere. But you know, in in, in terms of thinking about this, you know, decision making, 
like, under uncertainty. Like, you know, suppose, you know, suppose there's another, you know, vi virus that comes up that uh, threatens to become a pandemic. You know, what should we do? You know, what, what lessons have we learned that, you know, we could apply to, you know, some, you know, similar to COVID, but not, you know, but not COVID. <laughs> And the lesson that our policymakers did learn with COVID is that the best solution is to ape China, but not go all the way. So politicize your scientific establishment, try to suppress dissenting opinions when they don't go with the political line, and then solve everything by heavy-handed lockdown techniques. And so all the Western countries that you would have thought would have been an alternative to that just did a, you know, let's do that, but only go halfway on it. So we won't, you know, lock up scientists, but yeah. Um, and, um, and, uh, but we will kind of lean on social media companies about them or whatever. And, um, we won't put people under house arrest, but we will, uh, you know, mandate lockdowns. And this is not, again, a party thing. It's, it's across many different countries and it's across, you know, whether the right was in charge in that country, or the left, you get this, this is kind of what we inherited. And what's scary is how much parroting of China it is rather than a kind of alternative kind of response. So if we're saying, what have we learned from it? That's what we have learned. That's what people have decided to do. That's what they've internalized. If this happens again, we're gonna get, at least the first reaction might be to have more of this. What I think we ought to learn is that there's a need to have in statute defined powers for what governments do in cases of uh, pandemic or contagion risk, where there are like categories of thing how what what how it's judged that it's this category of thing what will be done in that kind of case what the the limit of the emergency power would be um how we're going to test what's you know what, so that it's not what we had now which is the president scrambling to do something and trying to cover his ass politically and therefore passing it on to the governors who were then doing the same thing and what all of those people did was kind of evade the problem until it got too big and then tried to clamp down on their societies rather than having any kind of, um, you know, rational strategies. I disagree with you in the sense that, that I agree that, that I agree with the description of what happened, right? But, mm -hmm. and going ahead, going ahead, get, having some sort of like rule book that is ex ante put in place so that once the crisis hit, you kind of know how to follow, that's definitely generally a good idea. My concern, however, is that the rules and definitions of when you cross certain it might be based on really shoddy science. And mm -hmm. that's what we saw here. Our ability to use these epidemiological models, they, they turns out they were all bad. They're all bad. And, and they were useless for decision-making. So had we had a, in place a you know, strategy to deal with it using inputs from this model, I think we'd do, we would, would have done a lot of bad things as well. So I don't yeah, think that so would have solved anything. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think there's a, there's a real, I mean, if, if we honestly look back at the at the, these mathematical models that were put in place and their effect in life in the last two years in the world, you know there would be a lot of people that would be very ashamed of of, of their work and the quality. Again, not because they did it on purpose, just because of the bad quality of work, what it has led to. Right? So you do something that's bad quality and it leads to a lot of problems. I mean, you're not particularly proud of of, of the outcome. Um, so meanwhile, there were a lot of like long standing. I think so. Eric Winsberg this week said something to me said, said that I thought stuck with me. He said like, trust old science more than new science. And he didn't mean like, oh, old is better than new. No, it mean like, like long standing bodies of literature. Science moves slow. 
and you you need this sort of like really long-standing body of literature to trust on some on some aspects of science. And here's an example of it where this old man from Sweden comes in and says, you know, I think people are forgetting that we're dealing with respiratory virus. This thing's going to be multiple waves. We can't. There's no there's no exit strategy by locking down right now. This is not going to work. We need to just basically learn how to live with it. And I'm not saying that they did it perfectly in Sweden, but they were honest about it. And they use like the playbook of many, 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 many previous respiratory viruses, pandemics. And they didn't try to do anything crazy and new and, and draconian. They're just like, listen, we're going to try to isolate some people. They, 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 they did a bad job managing, uh, uh, again, nursing homes, which again, hard to, to, to avoid, but in the beginning in particular. But like after two years, they look no worse than anybody around them. Yeah. I, so I think when I talk about a need for law, there's a Swedish um, Communicable Disease Act. If I forget the, the year that it was in, but it was well prior to this pandemic that was governing their, uh, I mean, in part it was that they had a the, the particular epidemiologist uh, and he had certain views, but part of the context in which it was happening is there were laws about what triggers certain kinds of powers. And it and they were not like just those SIR, uh, SAR model, what is it, SIR model? SIR, model. SIR models. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think that's the kind of thing I'm thinking of as, as the regular law, which isn't to say Sweden handled it perfectly. There are ways in which they didn't, and maybe ways in which right. their laws can be revised in light of what's learned. But the um, we did not follow what was understood to be the best science uh, two or two years or a year before um, this pandemic, in the pandemic. It was not the playbook that you should have immediate lockdowns. It was not the playbook that schools should be closed down before other things. These were things that were done in panic because it wasn't clear who was in charge. And so if you, law moves slowly, and so um, to the extent that some of these things are put in law, they're gonna go, they're not gonna be about what the latest scientific, you know, paper of the month is. They're gonna be about made when we're not in a crisis time, thinking about how power is distributed in these kind of situations. And that I think is something that can lead to public trust in the institutions and can also limit the fact limit the extent to which we have political leaders uh, acting uh, out of panic with no with no um, rails in the fact, which I think what we saw a lot of, again, all over the world. So this is not distinctly an American problem. We weren't the worst, uh, in fact, in it. Right. Um, I mean, even of, you know, what you might think with liberal democracies, I mean, New Zealand and Australia uh, and even well, Canada. And, and people will point to them as, as successes, right? But like not for the right reasons. Uh, you know, the, the fact they avoided the, the, the initial, you know, overwhelming contagion because of the fact that, you know, they had the ability to control in, inflow, right? As islands, it's something that is non-trivial in the progression of the disease in that country, in mm -hmm. those countries relative to the rest of, West, of the Western world in particular, where we, constraining freedom of movement is something more difficult. Yeah. Um, so I I want to say that you know one of the lessons that that I learned here, or one of the things that I think is that testing turned out to be a far bigger deal than I thought. Because I, I thought I thought in the beginning, you know, okay, we have we have lockdown. This will you know certainly be done in you know a month a month or two. But you know, time and time again, it seems that you know the, the best sort of mitigation strategy beyond investing in in vaccines, like uh, you know Operation Warp Speed work, you know, worked, you know, I, I, 
I, I think, yeah, well, I think it de- definitely worked. We got the we got vaccines out of it that are effective vaccines out of it. But the other thing, like, the, I would want something in, ter- in terms of, you know, Gre- you know, Greg's framework, like, you know, what, what, you know, laws would be some framework that we could that spend a lot, uh, you know, a lot of money very quickly on tests because the tests don't have to be, you know, a hundred percent accurate, but, you know, I, I think it's it's been so hard to get good, you know, COVID tests, even two years and not even good, like just get a lot of them, right. get, get them two years in. That's the biggest yeah. failure. That's the biggest failure that we, yeah. we, we encounter. And, and there's, if I encourage you to go back, if anybody, maybe you can put this in the listening, in the, in the, the notes for the podcast. Um, Paul Romer, economist from NYU, maybe I can't remember now, uh, but famous economist, Nobel laureate, I believe. Uh, wrote a thing in the very beginning saying, test everybody every day, multiple times, this thing is over immediately. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. And he wrote it, the, the, the test doesn't have to be perfect, but just like you change the probability dramatically, if everybody did this, this will be over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we didn't, we didn't even approve a number of tests that, you know, other countries approved that were developed in the US. We didn't even approve, they are not available, right? So Germany did one thing much, much better than us, which is exactly that. There's abundant like rapid tests in Germany, not things that you need to report. That's the other thing too, it's just, just people controlling by themselves the, the progression, right? Uh, there's no big consequence if that's positive, just don't go into the, the barbershop because there's a thing in the front that you lick and, you know, and throw in. That, that is, I agree with you. I mean, that if we don't learn that lesson, that in, in 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 contagious disease pandemic, you need to have very quickly low quality tests is better than high quality tests if they are fast, right? So fast and 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 erratic is much better than precise and slow. And this is something that was known from the beginning by people who this is their field. So Michael Mina at Harvard was ringing the bell about this from the beginning. My friend Amos Adalger, who we interviewed here once last year, was, was making sounds about this from the beginning. And South Korea, which did um, has had more problems later on because of lack of vaccination and slower uptake of vaccination at a certain period. But early on was very good, uh, much more open than, other, than we were uh, because they were able to do a lot of testing. And um part of we have this kind of sclerotic regulatory framework where the declaration of it as a health emergency actually made it harder to get tests out because the standards for them changed. I had friends working in emergency rooms where they actually had equipment in the hospital to do tests, but they weren't allowed to do them. And so they were treating people that they knew had COVID, but they couldn't prove it with the test. And it was just, it was just a mess. And what we need in general is a regulatory framework that is a bias towards freeing things when things get, when going gets tough, to allow for greater scope, not for uh, of 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 um, private action, not for constraining and centralizing. And all of the imp- impetuses were towards constraining and centralizing in in this pandemic. the The best thing about warp speed was the kind of freeing up of regulatory pathways um, to make things happen more quickly. But that could have been done, you know, I mean, politically feasibly, maybe it couldn't, but that should have been done a lot, a lot wider. And in particular with testing, how about the following? Anyone can market anything for COVID. No one would support such a law. They'd blanch and turn white, but it would have saved a lot of lives. And the reason there would have been lots of, you know, and similar and similar to ivermectin that isn't even really ivermectin being sold and all kinds of bad stuff but that could be handled by fraud suits later and we're able to evolve 
uh, ways to, you know, learn what works if we have the freedom to do it. And if we're not all extra distrustful of one another and of the government, because we know that they're hamstringing us in our ability to pursue our own health and we don't trust their ability to do it. Yeah, the, the vaccine too, like just point out that we had, I think vaccines would be ready six months earlier than they would have if it wasn't for the very strict FDA even even under emergency <laughs> approval was still too slow, right? We had the techniques and the, the things were in place. Like they, they had the vaccine in March, 2020. And I don't think we started vaccinating people until maybe December, 2020. So, so it's a miracle there, that was very fast and effective. And again, if you did uh, 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 trials, what do you call it? Um, trials, trials, right? That would have learned much faster about the effectiveness of the vaccine. And, and anyway. Or so, at least yeah. you may have. I mean, there are, there are questions about whether if we had the freedom to do that, it would be the right thing, whether it would be, uh, whether it's actually the best from, uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of questions in how do you prove effectiveness? And maybe it really takes more time to prove effectiveness, but let the people and the companies that think they know it sooner, give it a try and, you know, buyer beware and um, and so forth. And the ones who think they, they need to take longer, take longer, or maybe we would have it in the most vulnerable populations earlier. I mean, how bad could this thing have been that giving it to everybody in a nursing home was going to drop dead if they got COVID? Um, you know, we, we might not have needed to know how just how safe it was to know that that was a good move before you give it to a 20-year-old who you need more information. And we got the information and we are giving it to 20-year-olds. But, you know, to give it to a 90-year-old maybe is a, a lighter lift. All right. So to wrap up, they're talking about our predictions for the, the midterms. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so my prediction for the midterms. Uh, I'll say that Texas gets redder. So Texas, the Texas House, um, Texas Senate, um, all statewide, all statewide uh, are going to be Republicans. Not, uh, I don't think there'll be any any Democrat that's going to squeak through. And and nationally, I, I think it's 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 fair. To, it's going to be hard to see a House that doesn't go Republican. I'm not so sure about the Senate. I think the Senate, there's a, it's, it's maybe 50-50 there. And not 50-50, not the split, but like, I think the, the, odds, the, 50, 50. the odds. And, and particularly just because of where people are vulnerable, the, it, it's not clear to me that <clears throat> Republicans have, have a strong advantage there. I think a lot of people are assuming that. Uh, but when I look at the data more carefully, to me, it sounds that it's more like a closer race in the Senate. But there's absolutely no way that the, the Democrats keep the House. I, the, the only pushback I, I would have on that is, you know, unless something really weird happens between now. So I, I, I agree, you know, look, looking now, it, looking from right now, it, it looks fairly impossible for the Democrats to keep the House. But in, in the Senate, yeah, there, there are very few races. You get a couple, you know, a, a, the Democrats win a couple close races and, you know, it's 51-49. Or, you know, the Republicans win a couple of close right. races and it's, you know, 51, you know, 49 Republican control. Yeah, so I don't have an opinion on the Texas races uh, um, only because I'm not long enough a Texan to have uh, gotten a feel for Texas politics. Um, in general, I'm more for things becoming more mixed. So given that it's a pretty red state, I'd like to see, you know, um, more more tension between the parties um uh but i don't know really what's going on and, I, and i'm not happy with some things i'm happy with that this texas legislature did but other things i'm very 
unhappy with. So I'd like to see them get some pushback for that. I don't think they're going to, but I'm not sure. On the national level, um, I mean, everyone thinks, and I think with good reason, that this is going to be a election in which the Republicans pick up seats, at least in the House. Uh, almost always you get that in a midterm election. Uh, almost always you get it in a midterm election where the president's approval rating is not good and Biden's is not good. And no one's ever been a big fan of Biden, right? He was he won by not being Trump. And, you know, he's still not Trump, but he's not running against Trump now. So um, so I expect the Republicans to pick up seats. What I think, I don't know about the Senate either. What I think is more important, though, in general, than which party wins is what happens within the party. So I'm interested in seeing what happens in primaries. I'm interested in seeing um, when you get a candidate who's notable in one direction or the other direction from the party mean, does that candidate do well or badly? I think insofar as we have the kind of broad political system we have, um, you're going to get parties exchanging power every couple of years at the national level. If, if the public opinion shifts enough that that's not going to happen, the parties will shift to be there. So we're going to get a, have a system in which the parties, um, you know, trade off. And most of the time we have mixed government. And the question is, what's the constitution of those parties? Are, is the Republican Party um, about what? Is it about markets and lesser regulation? Is it about making sure that the country um, has lower immigration and fewer imports? Is it about... Um, um, religion? Is it about freedom for religion, which is a very different thing? Is it about um, a cult of personality around a particular leader? And likewise, for the Democratic Party, is it about um, some plausible vision of, of racial justice and equality? Or is it about burning down the world um, uh, as some kind of totem for uh, redressing past sins in a way that won't do it? Is it about socialism? Is it about unions and working people? Is it about, you know, what is it about? And um, and in both parties, to what extent, whatever their problems and whatever they think the problems of America are, do they acknowledge that there's something really great about the American system that we need to work to preserve, including working to preserve in a context where we disagree with a lot and are going to be exchanging uh, who's in power sometimes? And to what extent do they see it as a situation where we have to jockey to make sure the other team never gets in power? Um, despite the fact that we don't disagree on fundamentals, because they don't, I disagree with some of the fundamentals, and maybe we here do, but or some of us, but we don't, um, but where we're seeing it as, you know, we got to kill the other team before it gets power again. So that's, um, in both parties, I'm looking for more people who value the institutions in America and, um, and are less about dunking on the other team and hoping to see people like that do better in primaries and people who are on the opposite side do worse. I'm not too optimistic, but that's what I'm hoping for. So actually, I am pretty optimistic on that dimension. And here's a couple, a couple of data reasons on that. One is what's happening in Texas. In Texas, which is a you know, very important Republican uh, chunk of the country, right? Uh, you get establishment candidates across the board, across the board. So, so they're not, they're the old school Republicans which might be criticized in, in various ways, but, 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 uh, uh, but that's like not, you're not getting the, the, the sort of uh, Trump-esque vertent of the party dominating and changing things here. So that, that's one good indication of it. And the primaries are going on now, early vote just started, but that seems to be what's, what's about to happen here. Um, the other thing is the way in which uh, their polls, and there's a 
if you read The Economist this week, there was a poll on basically Republicans versus Trump. Whether your support is Trump or Republican Party. And, and there's a big change there in the last six to eight months where it's becoming more and more Republic, supporting the Republican Party versus supporting Trump, which again is a, is a decoupling there, which is, which is good. And then, and then the third thing is that this election is going to be like all elections, really driven by independence. Uh, and there is um, there's this, this Steve probably knows best than me here in terms of the way they ask questions about Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And oftentimes there's like the preferences are you know Democrats are here, Republicans are there, and independents sort of fluctuate in the middle. Independents right now in terms of issues, they're very much with Republicans, very very strongly with Republicans. So so I think that if that's the case. And they are going to be less tempted, I think, to vote for the type of more extreme, you know, populist types of candidates out there. If they're participating in, in, in primaries across the country, to the extent they do, which is maybe that's the, my, my flaw in my argument here, um, I think that you're going to get actually a moderating influence in, 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 in the choice of candidates, which means that not moderating like centrist necessarily, but just not the more extreme versions of, of what could be. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I agree with about the independent voters. It's how the primaries work that I'm um, more worried about, but I don't know enough about them. Steve, maybe you know more. Well, th there's, there's some good research that essentially when e extremists win primaries, they do fairly horribly in the, in, in, in the generals. So you know, there, there, there's, there's hope in that, uh, in that direction. And then there's some you know, new research about you know, e extremists in Congress tend to have much worse uh, post-congressional careers, you know, in terms of like getting on boards and things like that, than you know, more more moderate members of of Congress. So there are incentives to be, you know, more. I, I think primaries there's an incentive to play to the, you know, the the, the stronger wi the wings of your party, just because that you know you can get more more votes that way. But in terms of general elections and then you know post-career options in Congress, there are incentives to moderate. So. And it, was, it wasn't that the, the, there's a couple of Senate races that the primaries are pretty heated that is looking again to be the more the crazier uh, people are not getting getting far ahead. I think Ohio and Pennsylvania. I mean, you might not like what J.D. Vance, how he's been coming across, but he's taking advantage of a situation. Now, I don't think he's a, a, a there were options there that were to the right of him. Right. And similar in Pennsylvania, I think uh, it looks like the more, you know, quote, traditional Republicans are going to are going to come out of there. I mean, I, I'm hoping we get, again, the moderates. Um, I say this myself being in a proud extremist, but you have to be, if you're going to be an extremist, you have to be for the right extremes. And I think- Well, that's all thing, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I mean, I think one has to think about, like, I don't like the status quo. Shouldn't make you think anyone who also wants a big break from it, I'm with him. You want to- keep with the status quo unless they're breaking in the right direction. And I don't see uh, any of the um, things that are big breaks with it that are on the table now as being breaks in a better direction than it. Um, it when one comes along or we're able to make one, I'm happy to, to go to the nines with it. But I think right now we're seeing status quo and worse um, movements in politics. And that's troubling. Hopefully we're backing from that precipice and getting into a place where we can get more positive movement in a better direction in the next generation. All right, I think that closes for us today. Um, Steve, before just uh, um, our next episode, we're gonna talk about um, um, FTC and antitrust, so- we'll The wrath of Khan.
the wrath of Khan. There you go. All right. And, but before Thanks we everyone. go, we, we have to have our disclaimer. Oh, the, yeah. Go ahead. The, the, views, the views on this podcast don't rep- necessarily represent the views of the University of Texas or necessarily our views tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, and like, yeah. Anyway, we'll see you at the next uh, free lunch. Yep.